0: We love the Word, and we love sharing the Word. It's kind of why we're going through slowly in Romans 7. Um, There's a lot of integral things. We won't go into all the details of them. Some of you that are theology buffs or read a lot will hear some of my um, positions come out as I share um, and um, as we go through these, and we'll catch... Some more of them as we get into Paul's rendition in 13 through 20 and through the end of the chapter. Well, we're in Romans chapter seven, talking about our union with Christ, our union with Christ, and our relation and how that affects our relationship with the law. So it's it's really this God's righteousness, it's His right empowering our new life. And so, but how do we how do we deal with the the old law? The law that brought us under sin, the the law that showed us our sin that we're gonna talk about. How do we what do we do with the law? Do we just throw it out now that we're united to Christ? What is our union with Christ and how does that affect the law? And so Paul goes into his personal testimony. And so that's what we're gonna be looking at this morning as we read. Uh, Romans uh, chapter 7, verses 7 through 12, let's uh, pray and read God's Word and let God speak to us through His Word and um, give God the glory and honor that is due His name. Lord, our desire is to honor You, not to honor Christmas, but to honor You, and, and that's our desire. Our desire as reading the word is that you would be glorified. Our desire is for us to know you. And Lord, uh, through the power of your spirit, you help us to understand you. So Lord, as you teach us, as you transform our lives and our hearts, may uh, our hearts be united with your heart. May we glean that from these words this morning as we read it in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 7, it says, So what then shall we say? That the law is sin? Shall we, he asked that question, shall we call the law sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin seized an opportunity through the commandments, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. As we look at this verse, you're going to basically, we see the relationship to the law We talked about last week how there are three types of laws. There's the moral law, which is the law for everybody. The Ten Commandments kind of falls in that realm where we learn about the moral law that tells us our relationship to God and that God is moral, He is holy, He is just, and we have to relate to that. And then we have the the ceremonial law that was for Israel to come into a right relationship with God and yet, that died when Christ died and rose again for our sins. He became the perfect sacrifice. We were talked about how the ceremonial law was just a foreshadowing of the Christ to come. And then we have the, the judicial law. And that judicial law was a law that God gave Israel and how to relate to society around them. Uh, we even in our government and our laws and our society we've we've gleaned a lot of the things that we do our forefathers took from this law in the old testament now that god has saved us and he has put us into right standing with him he has justified us what do we do with the law do we just toss it all out in fact we even looked if he goes back to verse five and to six this is why Paul asks the question in verse 7. In verse 5 and 6, he says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. You notice that the, because of the law, we saw sin was aroused and it brought forth death in our life. So then the question by some people are like, okay, so is the law sinned? And Paul answers that question by no means. What what happens here is, is we are coming face to face with the reality of our own guilt. And there are basically two things we can do when we come to realization that we're all guilty. We can deal with it directly and honestly before God, and say, I am guilty. And we can respond to him. And we say, yes, I am responsible for my sin. And we, Or the other way is we can deal with it defensively by excusing it within ourselves. And, and we can make excuses for our sin and say, well, it's really not my fault, right? It was my circumstances. It was this. It was that. We can get defensive and we can make up a bunch of uh, a story to excuse our sin. And that's the crux of what we're dealing with here. People would basically say, well, it's really not my fault. If it wasn't for the law, I wouldn't be sinning. So it's the, it's the law's fault. And you know what's amazing It was we see that in society. There's, there's states that say, well, the law is not fair. It's really making all these people break the law, let's just take that law out of society and life will get better. And of course, we know that sinful flesh is totally depraved and people are depraved and they're not naturally good. So by removing the law, guess what? Did the society get better or worse? Oh, yeah, and, and now they're trying to re-bring back laws. Uh, to take care of some of the things that they took away and guess what now that you took it away guess what it's a lot harder to bring it back and they're having a fight on their hands the basically people had started arguing with Paul and saying it's the law's fault and they they shift the blame we all do that don't we a certain amount of at one point or time we all do that it's just and the adults are like, well, you know, I kind of grew out of that. And to that, I would say you've just gotten better at it. We just don't notice it as much. We shift blame all the time. You know, and that's the, the reality. We saw it with Adam. Adam, right? He was a victim. And he blamed Eve. It's like, it's that woman you gave me, right? And you know, you can imagine he probably got slapped and he was like, You took it freely. <laughs> You know, you didn't have to take it, right? So Adam, right from the beginning, in Genesis 3, verse 11 to 12, he blamed his sin on his wife. Eve, by the way, very next verse in verse 13, she was a victim. She played the victim card, and she blamed Satan. The whole Satan defense that we saw raised in the end of the 70s and the 80s. It became popular. Satan made me do it. Uh, the de- you know, the devil made me do it defense. And she blames Satan. And we see Cain. He was a victim. He played the victim card with God, talking with God, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 9. And guess what? He blamed ignorance. He said, I was ignorant. And God said, no, you aren't. And he called him on it. God, God held his feet to the fire, literally. So <laughs> here's the thing. We, we play those cards all the time. We blame someone. Uh, we blame, you know, the devil. Uh, we also will play the ignorant card. In fact, if you go back and you remember in, in Romans 1 and Romans 3, that, that innocent or ignorant card was played multiple times. It was played by those who uh, weren't religious, and it was played in chapter 3 by those who were religious. They played that ignorant card very well. Fast forward in the New Testament, in James' day, James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and some ple- believers were, again, playing the victim card, and they blamed their circumstances on being, um, that, that on their having been ordained by God. God did it. God ordained it. And I'm a victim, and uh, I blame my sin uh, on being, that was God orchestrated the whole thing in, Genesis, in James chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. And, and James like, that's impossible. That's not God's character. And so they went through God's character. In Paul's day, and Paul is writing in, to the Roman church, and, and God is sharing this with us now for our benefit, for our understanding. But in Paul's day, some player, uh, believers were playing the victim card, and they were blaming God's word. It's your word's fault. If it wasn't for the law, if it wasn't for the word, I would not be sinning. And this is kind of this is where we now find ourselves. There is something wrong with the law, and it's causing the sin. And so what shall we say then? Paul says, by no means. That is the strongest emphatic. No, there is in all of the Bible, in the Greek. There is nothing stronger in the language. It, you know, it's like no way, no how, there's no possibility, right? It's just strongest words you can imagine to say no. That's what Paul said. And now he goes through the rest of seven down into verse 12 to give us the reasons why the law is not sinful in itself and this is where we're coming to in our understanding of these verses and all that although God's law shows us our sin God's law cannot be blamed for our sin and that's the reality we cannot blame God's law and we can't sit there and blame the law and say well if it wasn't for the law then I would be okay but that's not the reality here There are no victims when it comes to sin, right? We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? God is the righteous standard, and we fall short, and that's the reality. Now, the basis for Paul's discussion is found in the first part of the verse, but his answer is found now in the second part of the verse, and that is, we're looking at the right things that the law will do. The right things that the law will do. I chose the word right because the law is right. It is righteous. It is right. So if it is right, then what does it do? And here's the answer to that. This is what the law does. Number one, in 7b, the law reveals sin. It says Paul is sharing his personal testimony. This is Paul's answer from his own testimony with his dealings with the law. If you remember, if you go back to Acts chapter 6, and you go back uh, 6 through 9, and you go back to uh, Philippians chapter 2 and Galatians chapter 1, you see Paul talking about how his start with the law. And he was perfect, he said. I kept all of the law, but yet look at his testimony here. He says in the second part of the verse, I would not have known sin. The word known means understand to experience what it means to be a sinner. I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So he's quoting the Ten Commandments. The Tenth Commandment in the Ten Commandments. Thou shall not covet. The Greek there is very specific. He says, I would not have understood what it meant to be a sinner if it wasn't for the law. And that's what the law does very well. It reveals in our heart what we try to cover up. We're not perfect. That we are sinner. The law is like an archaeologist. You know an archaeologist? They're history buffs and they're not satisfied with just knowing history. Right? They want to see history. One of my favorite things, I took archaeology while I lived in Israel. My favorite thing was going out and digging up stuff. I have some of that stuff in my, in my, uh, in my office. And I will confess that there's probably some things that I shouldn't have. So I'm just being very open. <laughs> so yeah, I had to confess that because I got it through the Israeli checkpoint somehow, some way. I don't know. But the, the, the archaeologist is one who exposes history. It, it, it sits there with a shovel and with brooms and with with brushes and it sits there. And it exposes the history of old that's been covered up for generations. This is what the law does. It exposes the sin that's in our heart. The law, when we read God's word and we read who God is, and God's moral law comes face to face with us, it goes right down to the heart and it just brushes away that thin layer of excuses that we've made in our life that we said, well, I've done all these good things, but the reality is it exposes and it cuts right to the heart and it says, you're a sinner. You're not right, but God is right. That's what the law is. That's what he's saying in verse 7. I would not have known what coveting was, except that the law says, thou shalt not covet. Law is, is like a friend. Not a very good friend, but it's like a friend. You know the friend that always tells you the things you don't want to hear, right? But that's what the law is. It's like a friend who introduces one to another acquaintance. In this case, our enemy, sin. The law reveals the divine standard of God and as believers compares themselves against that standard and they can accurately identify their fault and their failure to meet that standard. They realize real fast in their heart that they're truly rebellious against a holy God. God is... God is revealing this in these verses and he's showing Paul's personal testimony. But by the way, in Matthew chapter 19, we saw Jesus talk about the rich young ruler, which was his testimony as well. You know, the rich young ruler in, in Matthew 19 came to Jesus and he said, Jesus, you know, you know, he didn't just call him Lord, he called him teacher, rabbi, good teacher you know, what must I do to enter into heaven? Jesus then confronted him and says, why do you call me good? There's no one good, right? He goes right to the heart. There's really no one good, but yet the, 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 the rich young ruler was saying, I'm good because I've, and he says, but I've kept all the commandments since my youth. Jesus listed some of the commandments. He says, I've kept all of them. Jesus understood that there was, his heart truly wasn't exposed yet. In his mind, he says, I've done all these things. I know what the the rules are, and I followed all the rules. Jesus went right to the heart of an application. He says, okay, the 10th commandment is I shall not covet. Here's the application. Here's what you do. Go sell everything that you have and give it to the poor then you can enter into the kingdom of God. And what did he do? He went away sorrowful. He didn't do what Jesus said. Why? Because he loved his riches more than he loved God. God used the law to expose what was really there, his idol of his heart. That's what the law does. It reveals really the sin. It reveals, it's the archaeologist sitting there Combing away, showing what it really we truly believe. That's what God's word, that's what God's law does. The second thing is, is the law arouses sin. Arouses. You can think of it also as a catalyst. The law arouses sin. Verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandments, the commandments of the law, produces In me, all kinds of covetousness. Not just coveting, but all kinds. Paul is saying in his own testimony that it aroused all kinds of things that he wanted. If we read back and you look at Paul's life and you take all the verses that talk about Paul and before he was a believer, when his name was Saul, you realize he wanted to be the best. He wanted to be the best uh, lawyer or living by the law Pharisee that there ever was. He was in line to become the Pharisee of the Pharisees, he was, you know, to be the, the, the lead all the religious orders. He wanted to do, you know, the best of the best. He wanted to be that. He coveted that. You can see that in all the language that describes Paul, and he talks about it in Galatians 1. And he says here, i right but this is what it did to him but sin seizing an opportunity that word opportunity is amazing it's a military term as i was studying the term i i was like whoa i didn't realize this word was a military you know how connected it was to military it's used a lot most of the time for military operations when Rome was going to go in and invade a country, they would go in and set up a base of operation. That's what the word seizing an opportunity means, to set up a base of operation. So when he was saying, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the law, what he was saying is that when the war broke out with sin, you know, the, you know they would go, the, the sin was going in with the law to make up a base to fight against us as our enemy. That's what sin was doing. Paul is saying that the commandment provided sin with a base of operations to attack our heart. It's hard fighting an enemy on their own soil, but it's even harder to fight against a hidden terrorist in your own country. we see that's what's happening right now and, and that's why it's been going on for years in Israel. Galatians chapter 5 verse 13 says this, "For you are called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity, a starting point or base of operations for the flesh, but through love serve one another." What we see here that Paul is telling us that the law arouses sin is that sin uses the commandments, uses the law. Sin is not within the commandment. That's not what Paul is saying. So listen, sin is not in the commandment. It is separate from it. The commandment or the law is not sinful. But sin is within us, but not within the law. Think about that. The reality is, is that the law is a catalyst to expose sin. James Montgomery Boyce talks about his own emphasis in his life when he wrote this in this section of Romans. Uh, back in the day, they outlawed in Pennsylvania fireworks. As some In the early turn of the century, they outlawed fireworks. And they said, you can't have fireworks. So they went to school, and the principal stood up at school and said, you cannot have fireworks. If you have fireworks and you bring them to school, you will be suspended from school and maybe even expelled. Right? And, and he was like, up to that point, I hadn't really even thought about fireworks. I really didn't care about fireworks. But the principal told us about fireworks. So they went home and their friends, they got together and they went out and they got some Fireworks. Wanting to show, you know, to be cool, they brought the fireworks to school to show their other friends, look at these cool fireworks that we're not allowed to have, right? And so they went into the coat closet of the school. You know, now remember, a coat closet isn't like a small little closet. It's a little bit bigger closet. So they had multiple friends, he said, in the closet. And they said, hey, let's just see what it looks like when you light the fuse. Just squeeze it at the the tip of the fuse, and we'll light it, and we'll watch it burn. There's like, you know, four or five of them in the closet. One of the friends is pinching it. They light it, and it goes right into their skin, and what do you do? You drop it, and it went off in the midst of the coat closet with all of them around the fireworks, he says, I can't believe how fast the principal opened that closet door. He's like, almost instantly, as we still couldn't hear, and they could see the principal's lips moving. They know he wasn't pleased by the look on his face. And he said, They called after we all got our wits together and we were sent home, and our parents came into the principal's office. The first words out of the principal's mouth says, I can't believe this I just told you you were not allowed to bring them to school and James Montgomery Boyce he goes I remember that's what the law does it tells us what is right holy and good but it also shows it arouses and it's a catalyst that just says oh well I want to do that we know Adam and Eve right you know, you have everything ever, more than any other human alive has ever given, been given by God. They had everything. Just, you cannot touch that. that do not, right? Or no, do not touch that. Do not eat that. Do not take the fruit and eat it. What did Satan do? Did God say you can't touch it? And it aroused within them to say, I don't think he did, so let's just take it. And then let's eat it. And it's not that bad. That's that, you know. It doesn't look bad, so it must not be bad. Approach. That's a scheme of the devil, right? And and that's it's crazy how many good things in life hurt us in the long run. And that's what sin does. It arouses. It's a catalyst. Have you ever dropped a mento in a Coke bottle? Yeah. It's great, especially if you tie put the lid back on and throw it out. There. You get away because unless you want, you know, sticky coke all over you, it'll blow up. Um, you, I, sorry, parents. <laughs> but it's fun to watch it explode in, in the, the, the eruption of like a volcano. Uh, what the It's a catalyst, right? The coke wouldn't blow up on its own until you put the mento in it because there's a chemical reaction. I don't know why. It's just cool but uh, I don't know why it does that. There's other things that can do that as well that I learned while I was cooking, but I won't talk about those. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I said (laughs) enough. But that's what it meant to be a sinner. To be a sinner means that we rebel against God because when the law came, came into our life, this dormant, sinful rebellion is aroused to its slumber as if it were And we discover that it's really there in our heart, and it bursts forth. If we want to see how depraved we really are, just read through the Old Testament law of God, and then take an honest journey through your own life, and see how really sinful your thoughts and desires truly are. It doesn't take long. I'm not talking about the ceremonial law or the judicial law. I'm just talking about God's moral law. That brings us to the third thing that the law does right. It reveals sin. It arouses sin. The law ruins the sinner. <laughs> In verse 9, he goes, starts off on this. And he says... I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, the sin came alive and I died. That's pretty ruined, isn't it? There's nothing more ruined than coming alive and realizing this something comes alive in us and kills us. Once alive apart from the law means that the sin was undisturbed, unconvicted. He didn't realize the great death sentence that he was under. He didn't realize it was there. When the law came into his life and he was listening to the law, he realized he was under a death sentence. Everything seemed fine until the law, right? How many times have you ever walked into a bathroom after doing something, especially like going to the mall or going out to eat or doing something only to realize your face is dirty or you have mustard all over yourself and you didn't see it, right? Just because you didn't see it doesn't mean it wasn't there. You just didn't realize it. And all of a sudden, the moment came alive and you're like, I've been walking around like this all day long. (laughs) The problem is there, you just don't realize it. That's what Paul is saying here. The thought is that without the law allowed... The, the thought is that life without the law allowed the knowledge of sin to be lie dormant. But when the law came, sin came to life in clear definition, understanding, and it led to the realization that we were under the sentence of death. That's the law. It's like a snake coiled up in the sun. You ever seen that? It's like they're dead. Um... I had a great moment in my life because I know how much my wife hates snakes. Now, if you know my kids, they love snakes. Jared was young, just like in the picture that you saw down below if you happen to be in Sunday school. Um, thank you, Eddie, by the way. That was awesome. <laughs> so the, uh, Jared was at camp, and uh, I was directing camp at the time, and And uh, he was running around and showing all the kids in the camp the snake. I I always knew where Jared was because the high school girls were, you know, running, screaming. um, Because he either had a snake, a lizard, or a a mouse he was trying to feed to the snake. Um, That's another story in and of itself. But he had this snake and he was running around with it. And you can imagine the snake played dead. Or it acted like it was dead. And Anissa thought it was dead, and she was going to go correct and, you know, teach all the kids. They got down in a circle, and, and Anissa had the snake, took it from Jared, had the snake. And I'm watching this unfold. I'm like, wow, she's actually holding this limp snake. It was just limp in her hands. And, and she had the kids in a circle, and they're feet to feet, you know, kind of like in this circle. And she's sitting there, and she put the snake down right in front of her, And as soon as she put it down, it came back to life. And I I was just like, "Whoa!" And Adisa's like, but then she just kept talking, and it's like, "Now let's pick up the snake and go put it away." And let's, you know, she's trying to teach the kids how to respect God's creation. But it came alive as soon as she put it down. That's what the law does to sin; it activates it. It just, it just, the sin comes alive. It comes uncoiled. It's frightening because it ruins what we think our good life is. Paul is telling in verses 9 through 11 that he's feeling within himself the sentence of death. He's becoming bogged down in this hopelessness and despair in contrast to the you know, to the fact that this sin has come alive and he realize his true nature. And, and that's the reality. The death is totally unrelated to the law. The law just revealed what was there. Paul is simply sharing what others have stated, other theologians, Augustine and others, over the ages since Augustine, and that he was alive in the sense that sin within him was not yet active, and yet he was living the life of an unconvicted sinner without remorse and in the enjoyment of his unbelieving life. And when the law came home to him, that which was inactive became active, and he realized that he was really a dead man walking. So what do we take from this? What is the conclusion of this? You know, as other, other professors of mine say, so what is the so what? What does this have to do with us? Reminded of 1 John chapter 2, it says, Do not love the world, the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world desires of the flesh, the, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. It is not from the Father, but is of the world and the world is passing away along with its desires but whoever does the will of God abides forever we realize why the law is good and why the things of the world is not psalm 19 you know paul knew psalm 19 backwards and forward he would have sung it he would have memorized it as a kid In verse 7 through 12, it says this, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, the commands. Precepts is the word for commands. The commands of the Lord are right, making the heart rejoice, The commands of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than gold, even fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward who can discern his errors declare me innocent from hidden faults who can unearth those hidden faults who can declare me clean who can discern my errors who can help me to understand the wrong that is within me the psalmist is saying it's god's law Here's a few things that we see in verse 12, and that is the commands are holy, just as sacred and pure as God, just like we read here. God's word is living, it's active, it's Him, it's His breathed out. He breathes out His word, it's from Him. That's why God's word, the Bible, is living, it's active, it's sharper than any two edged sword. That's how we know and understand God, but we also learn our true state of our heart. The commands are just. They meet God's righteous standards. They are His righteous standards. They are right. They are righteous. The commands are good. There is nothing bad or wrong with any of God's commands. If we go back and what Paul is teaching us, we realize this. Now, of course, the purpose for bringing our sin to life is to bring us to the cross. The reason for us is that we know the depths of our hearts, so we know how great the sacrifice that God made for us It's to bring us to the cross. The law brought our sin to life so we would realize why God brought his son to die. God gave his law to convict us of our sin and bring us to the end of ourselves so that we would flee to Christ for salvation. So we say, I'm not good. There's nothing I can do that's good. I need Christ. The law of God is not designed to make one spiritual. Just knowing the facts about God and the Bible does not make us spiritual. Praying a bunch of times so everybody can see does not make us spiritual. Doing all the law doesn't make us spiritual. It's designed to show one is sinful. Doing the law shows our sinfulness. And therefore, one who tries to be spiritual by keeping the law will be absolutely miserable. If you're trying to live a religious life and just do a bunch of good things, you're going to be miserable. But it's amazing when we realize our sinful state and we run to Christ and He declares us right We are the most free and joyful. Goes back to what he was saying in verses 1 through 6. He says it produces the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness, gentleness. Love for one another. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength so you can love your neighbor as yourself. We are miserable because oftentimes we try to do all good things. We, we're just going to be good. If I'm good, then I must be right. here to tell you that the law exposes our sin, so we stop seeing ourselves as good and we see God as right. God is right. And guess what? The power of the gospel is that he shares that right with us through the cross. Are you living under the cross or under the law? The law will only cause you to be more sinful. The more you try to do good and be lawful, the more sinful you become. It just, it just, it's law is a perfect archaeologist. It will reveal every point of sin in your life which is a good thing because God then does his perfect work in our life. Stop running to what looks good and start running to Christ who is our good for us. Right, We've, we've died with Christ so that we'd be raised with Christ. We're no longer married to the law and the effects of the law and what it does. We're married we're no longer married to that taskmaster, but we're married to Christ who has given us grace, who's gentle and kind. That's why we run to our Father who is in heaven. How be His name. Right? We long for the return of Christ because of what He does for us. That's what the law, that's what the law does. It's it's great because it reveals our sin. So we can deal with our sin and be closer to Christ. God deals with our sin in his graciousness. That's what the gospel is all about, the good news. He's got the answer for our sin problem in Christ. Stop running to the law, run to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this perfect work that you've done for us. Now, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. More than that, he rose again, conquering death altogether. Death, where is your sting? Where is its victory? It no longer has victory over our life for those who are in Christ, who have been submerged into a life with Christ. Lord, I pray that if there's someone here that... In their heart they've been arguing with you you and your righteousness and trying to declare themselves right, that they're just they're morally good, that they would see that they, they cannot keep the whole law. It's impossible that Lord of the law would do what it does and reveal that they are sinners and they stand condemned before a perfect God. Your standard is holiness, it's right, it's purity. You are pure, you are holy, you are right. And so, Lord, we stand condemned under the law. But, Lord, if we throw ourselves at your feet and confess our sins, the Bible says that he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. To cleanse us from all impurity. And to declare us right in your eyes. Through the work of your son. Who is our perfect sacrifice. We will be raised with him in the newness of life. It's no longer life under the law. But life under Christ. Lord I pray that we would surrender to you. Lord. For the rest of us that know you. That have. Surrendered to you, we've given our heart to you, and realized our plight in uh, because the wages of sin is death. We realize that you are our gift of God's eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. But Lord, we still we 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 still are tempted to to follow to chase the sinfulness of the world, and we're 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 struggling with the law and sin and what it's revealing in our life, and, and we're looking to goodness as a way of living. Help us to run back to the cross. Not to get re-saved, but to live under the strength of the gospel. To let it flow through our life, to change our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. To be transformed into the life that you've prepared before and for us to live, you, to do your work, to be prepared for your ministry that you would have for us. And to enjoy the fruit that comes by being planted in a life with Christ. Thank you for what you produce, that we don't have to produce it. We just need to follow you, be responsible to obey you. And you produce the fruit in our life. Thank you for what you are doing in our church body, and thank you for what you are teaching us and guiding us through in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.